Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski. The U.S. Treasury curve has inverted. But why? Why? The long end of the yield curve, that's moving freely up and down, up and down, no problem. But it's the, the short end that seems to be fixed in place. Why is it fixed in place? We're going to go over an article that Jeff wrote at Alhambra Investments. He's the head of research for Alhambra Investments. And at the blog over there, he wrote an article called Curve Wars, Short Follows Long Because It's Never Just One Part or One Curve. Jeff, we're going to do this episode in two parts. Part two is going to be reviewing the latest research from the orthodoxy, economic orthodoxy, that we don't have to worry about yield curve inversion. Part one, we're going to go back in time to the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, to give an example of Fed behavior that you believe is still with us, that sort of institutional, oh gosh, what would we call it? Just behavior, just uh, predisposed to see the world in a certain way. And what way are they predisposed to see it, Jeff? Inflation, inflation, inflation. It's inflation. It's always inflation, 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 inflation. It's always there. And you're right. You wouldn't think that an institution like the Fed, well, maybe you would, but you wouldn't think at least the modern version of how we're supposed to look at the Fed would be the same as, it, you know, the same bungling edifice that had uh, been instituted all the way back over a century ago, that it would never learn from its mistakes, that it would continue to make the same. I mean, it's the 21st century. Obviously, we're supposed to believe that economics and the study of money and economy have advanced such that we wouldn't be repeating these same issues over and over again. But there's something human about it. It's it's not it's not really about the institution as so much as it is flaws in humanity of the people who populate the institution, regardless of the time period that they're in. Here, let me read this quote by you. It's fantastic. And of course, it disappeared, even though I, oh, because there's many other pages here. Okay, here we go. Quote, the Fed, by every historical account, appears incapable. It will express confidence on the economy to the point of favoring an inflationary bias for very simple reasons. An inflationary bias indicates enough, if not too much money, which is the same as saying the Fed has at best done its job and at worst too well. Inflation means they've done a fantastic job, Jeff. Maybe even too I really love it. Job well done. Job done. Job success. Exactly. Deflation, on the other hand, you get into depressions and deflations and all that kind of stuff. That's one you can't really escape. The Fed can't say, oh, we've done a really good job. And then there's a monetary de- deflation and then depression. Although they do try, don't they? But inflation, 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 you're always saying, hey, we, we're really good at what we do. In fact, maybe we're too good at what we do. We've unleashed the inflation genie. So the Fed is always looking in that direction. And almost never looking at the deflationary direction and saying, boy, there's a danger there, because if you're the Fed, you think there is no danger because we're really good at what we do. There could never be a deflationary outcome because we're awesome. Perfect. Perfect. That's the human foible, human character flaw to look at the things you do as a good job and not reviewing. And don't forget, you know, Emil, the other part of this I didn't include in the article. I wanted to, but it was already long anyway like everything else I write, Milton Friedman, in one of the last interviews he gave in his life, he said, of course, economists are saying what the Fed says because the Fed and all the central banks around the world have essentially hired all the economists. 
So at one time or another, economists are either working in academia or they worked for the Fed or they used to work at the Fed. And so this kind of, hey, we're awesome, we never make mistakes attitude goes with economists wherever they are. And so it reinforces this idea that the Fed is always good, always effective, always positive. And so in that case, you're always going to be looking toward the inflationary side and never consider Oh, it could never possibly ha- a deflationary. Th- no, can't happen. Cannot possibly happen. For new audience members, we're referring to monetary inflation, the expansion of credit collateral and money. We're not referring to consumer price increases that are brought about because of supply shocks, demand surges and logistical snafus, which is what we believe has happened over the last uh, year. Jeff, it's we're bringing this all up because there's been an inversion in the yield curve. There wouldn't have to be an inversion if the Fed wasn't so stubborn, if they were flexible, right, Jeff? Because the long end is controlled by a distributed market, people with lots of money making bets about the future, a wisdom of the crowds. The short end is controlled by 12, 15 people, I don't know how many people, making decisions that comport with what we just talked about there political aspirations, their professional aspirations, character flaws. So you can see how they can make a mistake and then they have to project confidence. So they are saying the economy is good and we're going to keep raising these rates or we're witnessing inflation and we are stubborn and we're not going to listen to these markets. Am I right, Jeff? If they would listen to the markets, then they would bring down those short-term rates, which they control, which they influence, and then we wouldn't be witnessing inversions. Inversion signals stubbornness on the parts of the, of the Fed. Yeah, and it's weird because the Fed claims to be data-driven. They use that term all the time. As you just pointed out in great detail, they're not data-driven. They're non-economic. They do all of these other things. They look at other... You know, another one I would add is their econometric models, which they use. They're worthless. They're garbage. Yet they stick with them. And that's really the point we're making here is that once the Federal Reserve gets into whatever course it's going to go, it is likely to stay with that course, regardless of whatever happens or transpires along the way, until the point where it becomes so obvious they're wrong, that's the only time they they change their mind. And so... With the Federal Reserve able to influence the short end of the yield curve, as well as euro dollar futures too, what happens is because they offer alternative rates that, you know, if you're using, if you're holding a two-year treasury, you're going to compare that to what maybe the repo rate could be during that two-year holding period. You know, you're going to pay attention. If the Fed is, says, I'm going to start raising rates, they're going to raise rates and they're going to continue to raise rates until that magic moment when it becomes too obvious that they're wrong about raising rates. And so that's the two parts of the yield curve or the euro dollar futures curve. The long end says, your reason you're raising rates doesn't appear to be what the same thing that we're seeing, but we know at the short end, you're going to start raising rates and you're going to keep going because you have this inherent bias, these inherent flaws. They're going to keep you on that path toward mistaken impressions about the economy That's why it's so steep up front and so flat and inverted at the long end. It's really these two colliding views, the Fed's stubbornness and then the market version of reality. Okay, we're going to go over several charts now about the last time we were in a worldwide depression. And then after this audience, we're going to uh, segue to a discussion about the latest study that tells you 
not to pay attention to the man behind the curtain. Federal Reserve Bank Assets, Jeff, that's the first one. We've got it starting from 1914 all the way through 1941. You've got reserves on here. You know how much of them of those reserves are gold, total, securities, and bills, all other. You've labeled the 1920-21 depression, the Great Contraction, 1937-38 depression. What should we take away from this chart? That after the U.S. dollar devaluation, which is really the confiscation of gold and then revaluing gold on the international market, Gold flowed into the United States during the, 19, the middle 1930s forward in an epic rate because the U.S. was paying more for it. That's what devaluation means. And because of executive order, was it 6103, 6103, whatever it is, FDR's order confiscating gold, any gold that showed up in the United States meant usually ended up in a commercial bank's hand, which was illegal. The commercial bank immediately had to turn the gold over to the Treasury, who turned it over to the Federal Reserve. And so essentially you had quantitative easing. You had an asset swap where commercial banks got gold into their hands and swapped it for these bank reserves that the Federal Reserve created as the offsetting entry to the gold inflows. So throughout the middle of the 1930s, this level of bank reserves at the Fed skyrocketed for other reasons than quantitative easing. But the net result was like quantitative easing where bank reserves went nuts. And of course, the Federal Reserve saw this, even though this was the Great Depression, they saw this level of gold inflow and then the creation of bank reserves and said, this is going to be inflationary. This is going to be bad. We need to do something. It's 1935 and now 1936. We're a couple of years off the trough. Prices, wholesale prices have rebounded. They didn't really keep track consumer prices too carefully. There was a CPI, but they didn't follow it as closely. But prices were rebounding in general from their extreme lows earlier. Massive amounts of bank reserves. The Fed said, we got to do something. This is There's massive inflation potential here. And of course, they didn't look at the bond market, which said, what the hell are you talking about? There's no inflation here. There's only deflation. And that deflation in terms of money was the banking system that wanted to own only safe and liquid instruments. So regardless of the level of bank reserves, even though bank reserves skyrocketed, it did not change the behavior of the banking system whatsoever. So the Fed was looking at its own balance sheet and saying inflation when the markets were saying something else because the markets are the money. Fascinating. It sounds so familiar, doesn't it? A surge in reserves. Yeah, sadly it does. <laughs> uh, this time backed by real money, even better than the fiat money. You're <laughs> fantastic. An increase in consumer prices, Jeff, you said even though there was no inflation, but you also said there was an increase in consumer prices. So hopefully, ladies and gentlemen, you've been watching the show long enough that there can be differences between monetary expansion, whereby we see persistent and pervasive flood of credit and collateral flowing over the whole economy, raising the prices of everything versus consumer price increases brought about by whatever it happens to be brought about. Supply demand shocks coming off a terrible low. It doesn't have to be inflationary if we're not seeing the money aspect, which I believe is what we're going to see in the next chart, Jeff. The first chart we were looking at, Federal Reserve assets. Now we're looking at all member bank principal assets. And Jeff, are all member banks basically the best measure we have of the banking system at that time? 
And what are we seeing? Yeah, you have to remember there's the Federal Reserve System. At that time, there were still country banks and state level banks, which I mean, they were they were being shifted over to the Federal Reserve ever since the 20s and, and into the Great Depression. But this is the most comprehensive set we have for bank data at that time. And really, it's a good enough proxy like anything else. It's, it covers the majority of of U.S. banking, the, the overall U.S. banking system. So it's, it's more than enough as a reasonable estimate for what what was going on at the time. Okay. And what are we seeing in this graph? Because I see a, a, an increase in loans up to a certain point. That point would be 1929. And thereafter, a complete collapse. But we do see Epic. an increase in government securities. Epic collapse. That's the thing, right? On this chart, it's what you don't see. Because remember, the Fed's balance sheet got swelled, bank reserves, gold inflows, all those things. It should be what Milton Friedman called base money expansion. But yet the banking system said, yeah, we've got these reserves, but we're not lending. There's no loan growth here. We Loans are illiquid. Loans are risky. We're not doing that because the economy doesn't, our perception of risk, our perception of the economy does not warrant risk-taking behavior. Instead, we've got the New Deal. We've got FDR. We've got, we've got fiscal deficits skyrocketing. A flood of U.S. treasuries that the banking system says, yes, please give us more of these things. They're liquid. They're safe. We want them. And so interest rates fell because demand for safety and liquidity skyrocketed and stayed high regardless of the level of bank reserves or gold inflows. It's right there in the banking data. And unfortunately for us, unfortunately for the world, banks do money, not governments. And that's another important point that I think we should maybe at a future date, spend a lot of time on these misconceptions about the Great Depression, where when the government confiscated gold, everybody thought, okay, private money's done. Everything from here on is now government money. We've got physical Federal Reserve notes. Everything comes from the Federal Treasury, when in fact, that wasn't true either. We have bank money. We have deposit money. And then very shortly after this, we've got euro dollar money, which is another step in the other direction. So we didn't go from private gold money. We went from private commodity money to bank money, exclusively, almost exclusively bank money. Because even in the 30s and 40s and beyond, hand-to-hand cash of physical Federal Reserve notes was an anachronism. People used checks. High volume uh, transactions were done on ledgers, book entries. So we have bank money that followed from commodity gold money. It wasn't government money. It was bank money, which Just because we're talking about it doesn't mean we like that. That's how it it, it developed. Don't shoot the messenger here. We're just telling you what actually did happen. And unfortunately for the Great Depression, the banking system was essentially broken by the collapse. And in in an episode that we don't have a lot of time to talk about here, the banking system said right flat to the Fed in the 1936-37 when they were raising the reserve requirement, you guys don't know what the hell you're talking about. Is that what we see in the next chart, Jeff? This one is a stacked area graph, but now we're looking at all member bank liabilities. And we've got demand deposits, time deposits, and so on, interbank deposits. And you've called our attention to the Great Contraction, 1929, and then the 1937-38 Depression. Why are you calling our attention to those two moments, what should we see in this chart that maybe informs us about present day? Okay, so we get to 1935, the Federal Reserve, lots of bank reserves, getting worried about inflation, even though we're in the midst of a Great Depression where there's lots of people out of work. They said, we got to do something about these reserves because they could become inflationary. In fact, a lot of people were convinced they would become inflationary, including a guy by the name of Harrison and a number of other Federal Reserve officials. 
Now, there was two schools of thought about what to do about the reserves. One was quantitative tightening. In other words, to sell the bonds that the Fed held to commercial banks, thereby taking the reserves out of the hands of the commercial banks and giving them bonds. Essentially, the reverse asset swap of quantitative easing, where they're giving them bonds and taking reserves back. The Federal Reserve, they argued about that and said, no, we don't want to do that. They had been given the ability to control reserve requirements in the banking reorganization of the mid-1930s, including the Banking Act of 35. And they said, we'll do that because that seems much simpler. So we give the banking system all these bank reserves. We'll just lock them up, say that the banks can't use them, and therefore it won't be inflationary. And the banking system, this episode I'm talking about, said, are you crazy? We don't trust you people for liquidity. We just went through 1929 to 1933. You lock up all these bank reserves, we're going to have to create our own cash cushion outside of the Federal Reserve because we don't trust you people when if push comes to shove, we're going to come looking for bank reserves or some other form of liquidity when customers are taking their, their cash from our vault. What are we going to do? So what happened in 1936, the Fed decided it was going to raise the reserve requirement to get ahead of inflation that the market told them there was none. And then the market, which I mean by market commercial banking system, ended up liquidating, especially treasury bills that they didn't want to liquidate in order to increase their cash cushion because the Fed took away any other cushions that they might have had with these ridiculous regulations. And after they sold enough of these treasury bills, they went back and then bought more. But while they were doing that, while they were fluctuating from this other way, this mid-1930s, uh, you know, relatively stable system to then 1936-37 raised reserve requirements, they cut back on deposits. They stopped lending because they were afraid that if this led to another wave of bank runs like earlier in the 30s, they wouldn't be able to survive it. So they stopped creating deposit money at a crucial moment during the, the Great Depression when it wasn't inflationary. In fact, the recovery of the rebound was incredibly fragile. But what ended up happening was this depression within a depression, this 1937-38 depression that was outside of the 1930s, one of the worst in our nation's history. And the reason for it was because of this bank money wasn't growing like bank reserves was. And then push comes to shove, the Fed looking for, for this inflation case for provoked deflationary money to revisit the system when it could least afford it. Banking system concerned. They're on the ground. They see the real economy. They're seeking safe assets. They're being told you can't have these safe assets. So they seek other ones. Makes sense. Meanwhile, the ivory tower the technocrats see a different world for whatever particular reason. Perhaps they're not, the scholarship wasn't as advanced then or institutional bias. And are we seeing that again today? That's the main takeaway, isn't it, Jeff? That we're seeing that same story today. And maybe that's what the yield curve inversion is telling us. Yeah, and it's amazing because it's, it's, it does seem to repeat. It seems like, you know, before the Great Moderation, people looked at the Fed very differently than we do today. People looked at the Fed more realistically as a joke because it was. Its entire history was one big failure after another after another. 1937 obviously wasn't the first. I mean, a decade and a half after the Fed began, we got the Great Depression, which was supposed to be the whole reason the Fed was created in the first place. They screwed that one up. And why did they screw that one up? Largely because they looked at 1929 and thought, there's more inflation risk than deflation. So as the banking system is collapsing after the stock market destroyed a bunch of collateral in the call money market, we're just going to sit on our hands and do nothing. Again, the inflationary bias. It's incredible how 
this base note of incompetence sticks with the Fed throughout all of its history, not just recent history, not just ancient history, the entire history. So we were reviewing this 1937 episode for a particular reason. And that reason is they started to fear inflation as early as 1935. The FOMC voted for the reserve requirement increase in 1936, and they stuck with it until 1938, after, after that depression within the depression had finished, had finished. They went all the way through the 37-38 depression thinking that inflation was the greater risk and saying all the, you could read the notes or the, the minutes, the memorandum of discussion, whatever it is back then, they're complete with discussions about, oh, this is just a temporary setback. This is nothing big. Our contacts in the industry say things are okay. They're just, they're just on pause. I mean, any number of the rationalizations that you would, you would hear coming out of Jay Powell's mouth again in 1937. So the bond market is very well aware of this history and understands that once the Fed sticks with its course, or once the Fed decides on a course, it is likely to stick with it come hell or high water. And that's why we're seeing yields rise right now at the short end, despite what we're seeing around the markets, capital markets, real economy, suggesting the economy is in not great shape. Okay. By the way, the audience can read some of these quotes from those long ago memorandums at Alhambra Investments. You posted on April 4th, a blog post that was titled Curve Wars. Short follows long because it's never just one part of or one curve. Okay, here's a good quote. We're going to talk about the study that recently came out that said that we shouldn't be too worried about inversion. But before we do, I just wanted to underline what you were saying right now. Quote, where are we right now? Right back in the same pit of mistrust. And I mean that in two very important ways. First, like 1937, you think the banking system is just fine with the Fed's determination of what is or isn't the right amount of systemic liquidity? This is one of the most powerful parallels then to now. Having learned the hard way, these fools are, well, fools. Banks absolutely do not depend on them for when the going gets rough. Second, prospects for downturn blow away those for sustained inflations. Prices were rising rapidly in the mid-1930s too. Despite such reflation, the general monetary condition hadn't once changed. Again, I've been getting a lot of sniping on the, on the Twitter, Jeff. People are, not people, it's just one person, is uh, bothering me saying inflation is up and you guys were wrong and you should quit and you should get a third person on the show. Perhaps that person will know what they're talking about. Well, that's just me. That's the sock puppet account. <laughs> well, that'd be funny. We're just saying monetary inflation, big pervasive systemic liquidity versus consumer price increases. They're not the same, although the they're not. No, and it's we run across this all the time, as you're saying, is that uh, people say all consumer price increases are inflation, and the reason they say that is because the the term is used interchangeably in the mainstream. It's used interchangeably by the Federal Reserve, supposedly the people who know the, what they're talking about when it comes to money and inflation. But as our point here, they don't know what they're talking about when it comes to money. They don't know what they're talking about when it comes to inflation. And there are any number of historical cases, not just in the US, but around the world, where consumer prices can rise in a temporary short-run fashion that has nothing whatsoever to do with money at all. So what we're saying is, yes, consumer prices have gone up. Let's say it again for the hundredth time. Consumer prices are going up for reasons that have nothing to do with money. And if consumer prices are going up for reasons that have nothing to do with money, 
eventually they're going to stop going up because that leads to this other case that's not inflation, historically leads to a redistribution, a harmful redistribution, which usually ends up in recession. Lo and behold, what are we looking at when we're looking at inverted curves? We're looking at the market saying, yes, consumer prices are up. Yes, the Federal Reserve is convinced it's inflation. And yeah, what do you know? It looks like we're facing a possible recession in the near term future. So yes, consumer prices are rising, but no, it isn't because of money. Well, some people disagree with you, Jeff. Some people say, don't worry. Of course they do. And you know, it's again, you see the Fed's balance sheet skyrocket and you think, well, that's money printing. There it is. It's really easy to see when from the 1930s forward, money has been banks and really before the 30s. Money has been banks, not Fed. A couple of researchers have recently written a piece called Don't Fear the Yield Curve Reprise. And what they're saying is, don't worry about it too much, this inversion. Quote, it's not valid to interpret inverted term spreads as independent measures of impending recession. They largely reflect the expectations of market participants. And they should have (laughs) added a pfft. But they didn't. It must have gotten excised. They largely reflect. They're not professional forecasters. The expectations of market participants. Among various term spreads to consider, the 210 spread offers a particularly muddled view, especially in the present circumstances when the 210 spread is very much out of step with the near term forward spread, which offers a much more precise view of market expectations over the next year and a half. And it is difficult to concoct a reason to be concerned about the flattening of the 210 spread. Jeff, do you have it's any difficult. difficulty? It's very difficult. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> what, are they, what is their argument? It's difficult if you're the Fed. If, you're difficult, if it's difficult if you're part of this, hey, we're always awesome type institution. Yeah, it is difficult for them. What are they saying? They're saying, don't look at these spot rates. You said it good. I think you said it really well okay. last time we were, we were together, a couple episodes ago where you said, look, you know, the long-term spreads and the short-term spreads, the short-term spreads look at say one thing, the long-term spreads same. And really it's, it's the difference that we always say there's, it's almost like there's two different curves at work here because there are two different curves going on here. And the Fed is saying that the short run curve, really the forward curve, which is looking at, as we said, rate hikes into the intermediate future, unabated by anything else. That's, you know, the Fed thinks that because they're hiking rates, it means the Fed can get away with hiking rates. And that's the only thing that matters to the economy is the Fed hiking rates. When, as we're saying, history has shown, the Fed convinces itself it's hiking rates for the right reasons and then continues with hiking rates for the wrong reasons for a very long period of time. That was 2006. That was 2000. That was 1990 and any number of episodes. So where they kind of point out, they try to make a big deal out of how the near term spreads are very steep, whereas the long term spreads are flat and inverted. That isn't unusual either. Go back to 2000. It wasn't necessarily the way in in 2006. But in 2000, for example, the yield curve flattened in January and February of 2000, where the near term spreads remained steep because Alan Greenspan was going crazy hiking rates. In fact, of May of 2000, Greenspan did a 50 basis point rate hike, even though the curve was inverted at that point. And then what happened? While the long end had been flat and inverted months beforehand, then the short end inverts too over the coming months. So six or so months before the short end finally inverts, 
the long end had already told you what was going on. So for them, for these researchers to conclude that it's difficult to concoct an argument for why these spreads are telling you two different things, again, outside the Federal Reserve myth, it's really not that difficult whatsoever. In fact, this happens repeatedly. So what the short-term yield spread tells us essentially is whether or not the recession, the long end has already predicted, is imminent. So short end is steep because it may be the recession isn't imminent today, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't look at the long end, which is predicting that it will happen at some point or likely to happen at some point. Here's another quote from that March 22 report. And this one is, is again devaluing the market participants and it's putting the Fed at the center. And it is saying the Fed thought this, therefore the markets reacted. It's as if that's exactly it. It wasn't that the market was reacting before the Fed. Yeah, everything is backwards and upside down. Quote, during the first quarter of 2019, concern grew regarding the decelerating economy. For instance, the minutes from the March 2019 FOMC meeting stated, quote, growth of economic activity had slowed from its solid rate in the fourth quarter. Participants cited various factors as likely to contribute to the step-down, including slower foreign growth and waning effects of fiscal stimulus. Okay, so the Fed is now thinking maybe we're slowing down. The Fed thought of it first. Quote, unsurprisingly, market participants began to expect that more accommodative monetary policy could be in the offing. Such expectations, which caused the near-term forward spread to decline and eventually turn negative, were subsequently ratified in July 2019 when the FOMC lowered the target range for the federal funds rate. The market's reacting to the Fed. The Fed decides first. The Fed is at the center of our monetary solar system. You know, when I first read that too, I said, are you kidding me? Because, you know, it's obviously wrong. It's, it's, it's absolute gaslighting. Because as we've said numerous times, the market predicted in 2018, not 2019, in 2018, what would happen, and then it happened. These guys are coming in and saying, oh, the Fed realized in 2019 the economy was weak. They started to send these accommodative signals of cutting rates, and then the market reacted. Fired my language here, but that's just utter bullshit. It really is. Because the market, the euro dollar futures curve inverted in June of 2018, six months before all this stuff happened. For the very same reason. And let's not forget, as we talked about in a recent episode, the seven-year, 10-year spread, this very narrow part of the middle of the curve where all these things come together, it had nearly inverted. It was within a basis point or two in May and June of 2018 as well. So the long run part of the yield curve had, like the euro dollar futures curve, predicted six months ahead of time before the Federal Reserve ever got their head out of their butts and said, this is what's going to happen. So no, they are gaslighting you. They are outright lying to you, trying to revise history to say the market reacts to the Fed when in fact the market predicts what's gonna happen. And then later the Fed says, oh, we screwed up. We better get with the program. And that's exactly the scenario that's being priced in the steep upfront curves, flat to inverted curves right now in 2022. The market is saying something's not right here, but the Fed is going to do what it's going to do anyway, because the Fed always does what it's going to do until it can't. And you're being charitable, Jeff, because before <laughs> May and June from the bond market, we saw something 
turn tail earlier, and that's the U.S. dollar. It started to rise in April, if I yeah. remember correctly. It stopped falling in February, if I remember correctly, 2018. And then even before that, towards the end of 2017, we were seeing several shadow money measures, cross-currency basis swaps, behaving strangely, shockingly. All of those were warnings well before, let me check again, let me check again, the first quarter of 2019. All right, that's it. When you look at it from the perspective of the mainstream or how the Fed rewrites its own history, history always begins the day the Fed does something, right? And so everything was fine up until the Fed pause in January of 2019. And that's just crap. That's just garbage. That's rewriting history. The markets said long before the Fed while Jay Powell was hawkish, while he was still hiking rates, you're wrong and you're going to end up turning around, Powell. He was wrong. He ended up turning around. The markets had predicted long before the Fed. And that is this difference in curves. The long end predicts what's likely to happen. The short end only tells you whether or not it's going to happen tomorrow. Is it imminent? So the fact that the long end is steep today simply means that we're probably not in recession right now. But the, the fact, or I'm sorry, the short end was steep today means the recession is probably not right now. But the long end in inversion, as flat as it is, corroborated, as you just pointed out, Emil, euro dollar futures, swap spreads, repo fails, uh, T-bill prices, Jesus. All of these other things tell you that it's likely, very likely, increasingly likely to happen at some point in the near future. Not, not distant 2024, but in the near-term future. And if you're waiting for the near-term spreads to tell you about it, it's going to be too late. I'm sorry I got you upset, Jeff. <laughs> Did you write that paper? I mean, after all, I'm the sock puppet torturing you on Twitter. Maybe you actually were, maybe that's one of your nom de plumes on this Fed paper. All right. Thank you, Jeff. All right. Take care. Take care.